Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Daniel Stahl about his new book, Hunt for Nazis, South America's Dictatorships and the Prosecution of Nazi Crimes. Hunt for Nazis originally appeared in German in 2013, but thanks to Jefferson Chase, we now have a remarkably smooth English translation available from Amsterdam University Press as of 2018. Stahl offers a rich transnational history about the post-war pursuit of justice over the scope of decades through the lens of the pursuit of Nazis who fled Europe at the end of the Second World War. But this book is also much more than simple international legal history. By tracing the ebbs and flows of political will to pursue Nazis who escaped across the Atlantic alongside the emerging global understanding of human rights, through to the actual cooperation between far-flung governments and civil society groups. Stahl highlights how post-war justice for Nazis became an integral part of dealing with the repression of contemporary authoritarian regimes in South America. Hunt for Nazis is a truly impressive piece of research tracing the political consequences of this complex story through decades of twists and turns. No wonder then that it was distinguished with the Volkswagen Foundation's Opus Premium Award. But enough from me, Daniel Stahl has been so good as to join us here today to talk about his new book. So without further ado, Daniel, welcome to the show. Thank you. So before we get into the book, what was it that originally attracted you to the study of history? Well, when I started to study history, I was still living in Paraguay. That's where I've grown up. And uh, my first thought was that uh, with history, one could explain longer developments of uh, a society. So when the when I for the first time realized that history is not so much about memorizing some dates, but uh, that it's about explaining what happens in society, that was uh, the point when I became interested in this uh, discipline. So how did you come to write Hunt for Nazis specifically? Picking up, obviously, some, some local background in the area, but why this subject? Yes. After after I began to study history in Paraguay, then after one year, I came to Germany to continue my studies here in Germany. And at the end, uh, I realized that uh, doing research investigation, that's, uh, that was just what I wanted to do. And uh, I was looking for a topic that would fit into my curriculum and also with uh, my the language I spoke so, and I was studying history in Jena. And in Jena, there was Norbert Frey who has done a lot of work on the history, how Germany after 45 coped with the Nazi past. So, and then he asked me to join a commission that was was doing um, research on the history of the German foreign office under Nazi government and after, uh, later, after 45. So I joined that commission and worked for this com- commission. And out of this constellation, we thought uh, about what kind of project would fit into all these different uh, backgrounds and yes, institutional uh, settings I was living in. So, um, and then we came up with the idea to look into what happened to those uh, criminals who had uh, been fleeing to South America and escaped to South America. And there was a lot, some research done on how these people came to South America. But uh, what uh, we didn't know was what was done afterwards to try to bring these people back to Kurt. And that was uh, what I was becoming interested in and I was doing my research. And that brings us to here. The big question in all of this, what is it that you want readers to take away from the book? I, I would like to show that uh, 
uh, how important it is to to look at uh, topics uh, not only from a national context or a regional, not look only at how, for example, Germany or Europe dealt with its Nazi past or with the collaboration with Nazi uh, Germany. But I would like to put emphasis on the, in these transatlantic uh, connections uh, that took place uh, within this field and that we can explain some phenomena in history better if we look at those uh, transnational and transatlantic entanglements. Well, you begin the book with one of these entanglements with the story of really a diplomatic scramble set off by the arrest of Klaus Barbie in Bolivia. The German authorities seem to have this surprisingly lukewarm reaction to the news that a notorious perpetrator could finally be brought to justice. To begin, I was hoping you could sketch the incident for our listeners and tell us, why did you choose this one for your introduction? What does it reveal? Yes, that was uh, in 82 in Bolivia, a democratic government came back to power. Before that, uh, Bolivia had passed many years under a dictatorship a very brutal dictatorship. In 1982, then finally a new democratic government was elected and came into power. And under this government, there was an interest in making a clean cut with the past, with the dictatorship in Bolivia. And then there was this figure, Klaus Barbie. Klaus Barbie, he had been living for many years in Bolivia. He had been Gestapo member in Lyon, France, and perpetrated some crimes there. And he had been responsible, for example, for the deportation of some Jewish children to an extermination camp. So, And he had been living since... Uh, the 50s and uh, since, since the end of the 40s in Bolivia. And especially under the dictatorship, he had become a, one of the more famous people uh, because uh, he had a very good relationship to different presidents in South America. And he gave them also advice on how to deal with the, what was called the communist subversion of the Bolivian society. That means he gave them, yes, advice how to conduct interviews, how to combat communist groups. So he had been involved in this repression of the Bolivian government. The opposition in Bolivia, the democratic opposition during the dictatorship, they knew that. And they had made use of this, of his engagement with the dictatorship in the way that they talked about him and show, tried to show to the German societies, to the German governments, that what was going on in Bolivia was actually the same fascism that had been alive in Europe during the 30s and 40s. So that this was actually a continuation of the history of Europe, what was going on in Bolivia. So and now when the de democratic government came to power and wanted to make this clear cut with a, a dictatorship, um, Klaus Barbie became one of the symbols. They tried, wanted to extradite him uh, to show also to their own society, but also to the European and U.S. American governments that they now were trying to get a democratic transition going. And so they took him into custody for extradition and called the German embassy and said, we have now Klaus Barbie here and we are ready to extradite him. So you just have to ask us. And that was a problem for the German embassy and also for the foreign office. Not so much because Germany didn't want, or the government didn't want to prosecute Nazi crimes, but more because during the foregoing years, the decades from the 50s and 60s, 
it had become very complicated to prosecute Nazi crimes in Germany. The prosecutor in Germany, when he saw the evidence against Barbie, he said, well, it's very possible that we will not be able to get him sentenced here in Germany. And if we don't do that, then there will be a public outcry all over the world. So it was the fear of the public reaction. What would happen if they wouldn't convict Klaus Barbie in a German trial? So out of this fear, the foreign office said, well, don't ask for extradition, but try to play on time. And uh, perhaps the Fran French will take Klaus Barbie. So uh, therefore, the German embassy started some very problematic uh, maneuvering because um, the Bolivian government was not able to hold Klaus Barbie as long as they wanted in custody because uh, after a short time, there was someone who came up with some money and said, you have to release him and... By law, it was not possible anymore to hold him back. So to make the, a long story short, finally, the Germans didn't have to take Klaus Barbie back because the French stepped in and they wanted to conduct this trial against Klaus Barbie. And that's finally what happened. Yeah, Klaus Barbie was extradited in March of 83. And then he faced the court in France and was convicted because of the crimes he had committed during the Second World War. And yes, you're, you asked me also why I chose this history. I think it shows pretty clearly how this story was connected and embedded in the societies on both sides of the Atlantic. On the one hand, it was clearly a part of the story of how European societies dealt with the Nazi past. First, the German societies, and they had really problems with uh, this Nazi past, also with uh, conducting trials against Nazi perpetrators. Then in France, it was part of development that had taken place since the 70s, where under a growing social pressure, the government and also the Kurds in France started to reopen cases of collaboration that had occurred under Nazi occupation. So that uh, France could, could have a trial again, Klaus Barbie was part of this development since the 70s. So that is the part of how European societies dealt with Nazi past. But at the same time, uh, the story shows how the hunt for Nazis was also part of how South American societies dealt with their own experience of state violence. Because uh, Klaus Barbie had become involved in these state atrocities committed by Bolivian dictatorship. And he had become part of this violence and of the crimes that had taken place. And now, after the end of this dictatorship that went against him and the new democratic government tried to, to extradite him as a symbol, as a sign of democratization. As you lay out quite nicely, all the trends that are connected in the ultimate prosecution of Barbie. Let's circle back and start tracing this story from where it begins. Where does this fear that Argentina would become a springboard for a Fourth Reich come from? Argentina is in this whole story a very specific case. Uh, and I think when people hear about Nazis in South America, most of them will first think of Argentina. And that's not by coincidence. That is for good reasons. Actually, Argentina came into the focus of the U.S. American intelligence, because uh, Argentina was already in '44 under suspicion of giving a safe haven for uh, Nazis who were escaping from Europe. And why was Argentina such a specific case? It was had to do something with the foreign policy of Argentina during the 40s, during the Second World War, but also with the inner policies of the Argentinian society. 
to start with the foreign policy, Argentina was trying to to confront the U.S. American push for more hegemony in Latin America. So therefore, they were not interested in getting into the alliance against the Axis powers. Meanwhile, most of the other countries were joining the allies. Argentina stayed out and didn't cut his uh, relationships with the Axis powers. So that was a difference between Argentina and the other countries. And because of that, uh, Argentina was suspected by the U.S. intelligence of cooperating with Axis powers, with fascism in Europe. And they got evidence from, from within the Argentinian society because Argentina during these years uh, had a military authoritarian government, very repressive. And the liberal and socialist opposition were trying somehow to confront this uh, authoritarian government. And one way to do that was by collecting evidence that these governments were actually the same form of fascism that uh, one could observe in Europe. And then that if United States were fighting fascism in, in Europe, they would have to also confront these Argentinian governments. So this was the reason why Argentina became to be seen as a, as a country close to fascism. And also because there were some members of government very, very close to fascism and admired, for example, Mussolini. And Peron is a good example. Peron was first the minister of work in '45. And uh, he was uh, admiring Mussolini very strongly. So there were good reasons to, for this suspicion that Argentina would become a safe haven for Nazis. The interesting point is that these, uh, these suspicions were already there before the first war criminals came from Europe. So how did Perón make it possible for the Nazis to come into Argentina? Well, first of all, I, w I would like to change a little bit the question. Why uh, especially did he do that? Yeah, mm -hmm. Because there have been different explanations. Some say it, it was just a brain drain. Uh, he wanted to get those uh, experts of Germany who were able to bring technology to Argentina and enable Argentina to build airplanes and atomic bombs and other th things. But I think it was more than just trying to get knowledge and technology. But it was about uh, also about uh, ideology. He was not a fascist in that way. His policies were different, and historians have pointed rightly to the fact that we can't uh, see Peron just simply as a fascist. But there were some connections, some similarities between his uh, political projects and agenda and those of the fascist regimes. That was, for example, the strong anti-communism uh, and at the same time anti-liberalism. And therefore, he advocated for a third way. And he had always seen these uh, European fascist governments as a third way to liberalism and communism. So that was uh, why Peron was also interested from an ideological point of view in helping those war criminals to flee from Europe. And he built up a network. Uh, he sent some people to Europe, especially to Italy, who helped those Nazis to come to uh, Argentina and live there. And he also offered them a lot of help when they came to Argentina. In part two, you go on to begin examining this growing effort to bring justice to war criminals who had fled to South America. What happened to prompt this, as you put it, reluctant manhunt? Yes. Um, first was um, when we look at how the prosecution evolved in the post-war period, the prosecution of Nazi crimes, then we can observe that in the beginning, sure, we have Nuremberg and other international criminal courts uh, 
dealing with these Nazi crimes. And then afterwards, the two Germanys become responsible for prosecuting Nazi crimes. And then you see uh, it uh, very quickly, there are not so many new cases opened and there is a strong demand in the German society for Schlussstrich, uh, to end all these uh, prosecution of Nazi crimes. And at the end of the 50s, there's uh, the whole prosecution of Nazi crimes has become almost to an end. And then there's a change taking place in the German society. On the one hand, there is a new generation coming into offices and taking responsibility in the Kurds, but also in other parts of the society. These are people who were still in their youth under Nazi government until 45 and who had not participated in these crimes. And then at the same time, you see that um, Eastern Germany starts to, to instrumentalize the Nazi past to denounce and delegitimate Western Germany. And uh, they are always uh, pointing to the personal continuities in West Germany and saying this person who's in charge of that ministry was under Hitler, uh, has prosecuted that and that crime. So that, uh, and East Germany had all these documents and also the Soviet Union had some documents. So they could, whenever they wanted, come up with documents uh, proving who in West Germany had committed which crime. So that uh, built up a lot of pressure on the Western Germany to start dealing with this Nazi pest. Out of this constellation, uh, you see, again, in the beginning of the 60s, a growing tendency towards uh, more prosecution. There's a institution built up in Ludwigsburg that is uh, responsible for preparing trials on Nazi criminals. And um, against this backdrop, the German authorities, the West German authorities, start also looking for those who, who are not in West Germany anymore, but who had been fleeing, escaping to South America. And in this situation, perpetrators who had uh, escaped to South America become more and more into the focus of uh, West German justice. Well, as you begin to turn your attention into the 1970s, you talk about these two important events coinciding. On the one hand, globalization of Holocaust memorialization, and on the other, the rise of the right-wing dictatorships in South America. Can you tell us about the development of these two things a little bit more and explain how they affect the search for Nazi fugitives? Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, on the one hand, um, to stay with the uh, ways of how different societies dealt or, or cope with the Nazi past, for a long time, the Nazi past had not been such a big issue. During the 50s, many of the victims by themselves didn't want to talk about these traumatic experiences or they got the impression and the feeling that it was not uh, seen in a good way by the society if they talked about their experiences. And also in different societies, uh, for example, in France, they talked a lot about the resistance against Nazism. And according to this narrative, the whole French society had been involved in the resistance. And this started to change slowly in the 60s. Uh, Germany was a, uh, an example. And also the abduction of Eichmann from Argentina and his, the trial in Jerusalem uh, contributed uh, to changing how uh, the Nazi past was seen and to intensifying the discussion and public debates about Nazism and especially about the crimes committed by the Nazis. During the 70s, then, they are, you can see this in, very, in different societies, how they start talking more and more about uh, the crimes committed by the Nazis and uh, what now comes 
into the focus and is uh, the Holocaust by itself. And uh, also this term of Holocaust becomes uh, more prominent during the 70s. And this has to do a lot with the uh, American society where um, the Jewish society is becoming more and more secular and they are looking for new ways of creating a common collective identity and here the Holocaust plays an important role. So these are some trends that explain why the more time passes after 45, the more the different societies start debating the Holocaust. So this is a development that is taking place in the United States and in Europe. At the same time, what you can observe in Latin America, this is the second line you asked me to explain a little bit more, is uh, that in the 70s, uh, many different countries experience a right-wing shift and some right-wing dictatorships come to power, especially the military dictatorships of the 70s who committed really brutal crimes. For example, Argentina. In 76, you have in Argentina this um, revolution and uh, the overthrow of the government of Isabel Perón, the second wife of uh, Juan Domingo Perón. And there is in 76, this established a dictatorship. At the same time, in 73, in Chile, there is taking place this coup against uh, Allende and Pinochet comes to power. In Brazil, you have since 64 uh, a dictatorship in power. And also Uruguay in the 70s has a dictatorship. So in the 70s, at the middle of the 70s, Almost the whole South America is uh, now under the rule of right-wing dictatorships. So th these are two developments that happen at the same time and who are not connected to each other. But both of these uh, developments influence how different groups deal with the question of how can we bring the Nazis who had been escaping to South America back to justice. Because the development in the United States and in European societies where they, the discussion about the Holocaust, the crimes perpetrated by Nazis is becoming more and more prominent in society, brings pressure to the courts and to the prosecutors to, to prosecute Nazi crimes and to intensify even more the prosecution of Nazi crimes. So they are, they are trying to get these people back. And also in the society, you have many uh, non-governmental actors who are advocating and trying to pressure these governments to act and to ask for extradition of Nazi crimes. And at the same time, you see these right-wing dictatorships are not very interested in extraditing uh, Nazi crime uh, criminals because what they say uh, what, and what you can observe in many of these cases is that uh, for them it is a problem it poses a problem if they have to extradite someone who's um, prosecuted because of committing crimes in the name of the state and this is the case for all of the Nazi criminals. When they come to a court and because uh, a European country is asking for their extradition, then what they are doing is to say to the media also that they did only obey to the government and uh, to what authorities told them. And if they say that, in a dictatorship, in a right-wing dictatorship in South America, this uh, is a problem for uh, for the authorities because they also want their people to do what they tell them to do. In their eyes, it's not a crime what these people committed. And uh, this is part of the reason why right-wing dictatorships were reluctant to extradite uh, Nazi criminals 
Pinochet is a very good example. He, he when he still was not uh, president, uh, when he still was only a general in Chile, West Germany asked for the extradition of Walter Rauf, who was living in Chile and who had been involved in the murder of Jews. When they asked for his extradition, then Pinochet came up with a letter, with a public letter, where he stated that Walter Rauf actually the only thing he did was to obey. And every Chilean would have to do the same in his situation and therefore Chile shouldn't extradite him. So that was uh, the reasoning behind uh, the uh, why the right-wing dictatorships were not so interested in extradition of Nazi criminals. Well, you're already pointing to this in important ways, but could you clarify for us how supporting the hunt for Nazis becomes connected to political opposition? Yes. In, in these different... Uh, Dictatorships, uh, sure, you have uh, people who are fighting against repression, the democratic opposition and also left-wing, uh, other left-wing groups, also gr guerrilla groups, uh, who realize that if they talk about the Nazis who are living in their countries, and if they denounce their government for protecting these Nazis, that they get a much more publicity also in Western countries and that uh, this enables them to, to be heard outside of their own countries. A very good example, which I always like to quote is uh, one Paraguayan politician in Paraguay, as we remember was in power Gustavo Stroessner, also a dictator since 54. So he had been in power for many years already in the 1970s and 1980s. And he was suspected of uh, sheltering uh, Josef Mengele, who had been doing some experiments with the inmates of Auschwitz, uh, deadly exp experiments, and also had been working at the selection ramp in Auschwitz. So the Paraguayan government under Stresner was uh, suspected of harboring Mengele. In reality, as we know later from the, when he finally was, uh, his uh, body was found in 85, he had been living in Paraguay only for a few months, around 60, and then he had uh, left Paraguay uh, and been living in Brazil. But Nobody knew that in the 70s and until 85. So there were all once in a while groups coming from North America, Jewish groups or other pressure groups who were asking the Paraguayan government to extradite uh, Stresner. And the Paraguayan opposition realized that there was a huge interest in Paraguay because of Mengele. And uh, in one of uh, the speeches, uh, the opposition leader, Juan uh, Domingo Laino, he stated, we want a Paraguay without drugs and without Mengele. So drugs, that was the other topic uh, he knew when he would address it, uh, he would get uh, publicity in the United States because the United States was fighting the drug uh, experts of uh, South American countries. But these were the... The two main issues that uh, the Peruvian opposition knew, if they would use it, they would get publicity in the United States, drugs and Mengele. So, and you can observe that, that in all the other countries, in Chile, under Pinochet, the opposition is uh, pointing to Walter Rauf and that he still is living in Chile and that Pinochet is protecting him. And they are deriving from this observation the conclusion that uh, what, uh, what one could observe in Chile was the same kind of fascism that had been in power in Europe in the 30s and 40s. And at the same time, you have that in Argentina, the opposition 
denouncing their government for harboring Nazi criminals and, uh, as we saw in the beginning of the interview, also in Bolivia. As you move into the 80s and then the 90s, you begin outlining the entanglements between the Nazi past and the responses to the South American dictatorships. How did the European Nazi past become connected to amnesty law in South America? That is a case. This happened only in Argentina. Argentina, as I said already in the beginning, was a very special case. In Argentina, after the return to democracy in 83, there's also... First, uh, there are very serious attempts to bring uh, before Kurt the crimes committed by the military junta. And you have some big trials in the mid of the 80s. And then you can see the same thing happening as in Germany, that the pressure groups are starting to call for an amnesty, for radical amnesty to all perpetrators. And uh, in the second half of the 80s, uh, the Argentinian government is passing two very important laws that uh, put an end to the prosecution of crimes committed by the uh, Argentinian military junta. And in the beginning of the 90s, this is actually uh, an issue that's closed. There are no, almost no new trials before Argentinian Kurds. And this is also the time that uh, Carlos Menem comes to power. Carlos Menem, he is also a Peronist. Uh, he stands in the tradition of Peron, who had been in power uh, between 46 and 55, and then later in between 70. Three and four. And um, Peronism is a very popular uh, political movement still in the 90s in uh, Argentina. And he, he assumes power now as a Peronist. And while he w is in power, um, many actors in North America, especially, grow very suspicious about this government. And they come up with the Nazi past of Peron and say, wasn't it Peron who had helped all those Nazis escaping from Europe? And Peron, what he is now do, trying to do is to show that uh, his government is Peronista, but it breaks with this dark side of Peronism as he sees it. And he wants to show to the international community that, our, that his government, um, although it is an Peronist government, is not a fascist, uh, not a government that's uh, rooted in fascism. So he, therefore, he opens the archives of Argentina and says, everyone can look at the archives, at the files, and look if, if we can find some Nazi criminals. And also, he's trying, trying to enforce uh, requests for extradition. There are a few requests for extradition uh, during this, these years. The most famous ones are against Josef Schwamberger, and against Erich Priebke. He really wants to see these Nazi criminals being extradited as a symbol that he makes a break with the fascist roots of Peronism. But the problem is in the 90s that uh, this is not so easy by doing it by law. According to the Argentinian laws, the crimes committed by Schwamberger and Priebke are prescribed. And according to these laws, the Argentinian prescription has to be taken into account in an extradition process. So that makes it very complicated to extradite these people. But Peron uh, Menem has a very important instrument. Menem changed the... Supreme, the Argentinian Supreme Court, uh, 
It was called uh, the Menemis, uh, the majority Menemista. Always when there was a case that was important to the uh, government, these there were two judges who took care that uh, their decisions were according to the interests of the government. So in, in the case of these two extradition processes, they also took care that the results were so that uh, these uh, people could be extradited. So that was one part. On the other hand, when it came to the crimes committed under the military junta in Argentina, Menem was very much forcing um, the end, the the, uh, amnesty laws. He didn't want to have the prosecution of uh, junta crimes uh, going on. So this was actually a politics policy very that was very ambivalent because on the one hand he said when it's about nazi crimes we want to extradite these people and these people have to be prosecuted but when it comes to uh, crimes committed by the military junta we don't want it and um, this ambivalence became instrumentalized and the groups in argentina who wanted to who pushed for prosecution of the junta crimes in Argentina, they made use of this very ambivalent way how Peron, uh, how Menem was dealing with uh, state crimes. And they took these extradition decisions of the Supreme Court and used it to argue in favor of a reopening of the junta crimes of the prosecution of the of the cases against the junta crimes and uh, in that way the nazi hunt in argentina became connected in a very direct way to the prosecution of the junta crimes because in the in the very there's one very uh, decisive judgment a sentence by the Supreme Court regarding the prosecution of junta crimes. And it refers to the both uh, sentences against Schwamberger and against uh, Pripke and makes use of these sentences in order to legitimize now a reopening of uh, the cases against uh, those who had uh, been perpetrating crimes under the military junta. So there is a very direct link then. Yes, the, and, and that was uh, only in Argentina and only because of this uh, Peronista past, because it was so closely connected to the political groups and the history of these political groups, only because of that, it was possible that it could gain such a weight in Argentina, this uh, issue of Nazi crime, uh, criminals. There's also the issue of Jewish assets looted during the Second World War at this time. Yes. How does the question of Jewish gold become, as you say, explosive for Argentinian foreign relations during the mid-1990s? Yes, that's also uh, an issue that's uh, related very strongly to Peronism in Argentina. And it has a very long history, this debate. In the mid of the 1990s, there is a discussion about looted gold uh, and it starts actually in Switzerland, yeah, because um, of those um, bank accounts of Jewish victims of Nazism and uh, when some of the children or grandchildren of these people tried to get access to uh, to these bank accounts, uh, they were denied. So there started, uh, out of this uh, situation, started in the middle of the 90s a debate about uh, looted Nazi Gold and and many of uh, investigators and of the media were going into the archives in the United States, looking for 
yes, uh, for information where this uh, gold that had been taken away from Jews during the Second World War, where it had been gone. And when they went into the archives, uh, they found these old files of the U.S. American intelligence, of which I talked in the beginning of the interview, where it said that it is very likely that Argentina is connected to the Axis powers. And what also they found in these files were the suspicion that Nazi Germany would try to bring some assets to South America so that in case of uh, they would lose the war, they would have uh, finances to restart the Nazi movement from South America. These were theories that uh, people could find in the files of, uh, of the U.S. American intelligence. And that brought up the question in the middle of the 90s, is there perhaps some Nazi gold still in Argentina? And yes, especially is it the Nazi gold, is it also gold that has been robbed by the Nazis from the Jews and brought to Argentina in order to reestablish the Nazi movement in Argentina? Um, as we know nowadays from research, these uh, theories were actually baseless and uh, they were grounded on misinformation. But uh, during the middle of the 90s, people thought, uh, well, we found this uh, information in the files of the U.S. intelligence. And if someone knows something very good, then it's the U.S. American intelligence. And they took that for granted. Uh, and took that by word, what they read in these archives. And that brought up the question of uh, where is the Nazi gold in Argentina? And it was uh, brought uh, Menem under pressure again because uh, he was trying all the time desperately to disconnect himself from the fascist uh, roots of his um, political movement. And at the same time, all once in a while, there came up some other issues. Was it uh, that a Nazi criminal had been found in Argentina like Priebke in 94? Was it the discussion about Nazi gold? And so during his whole presidency, he was uh, confronted with these debates about the past uh, about the Nazi past, but also at the same time about the past of his own party. Well, that brings us to the end of the book and the end of the Peronist period in South America. But before we finish, what are you working on now? I am now working on a project. It's about arms trade and international law. I'm looking at how at the attempts to regulate the arms trade in the 20th century by international law. And I'm starting actually in right at the beginning of the 20th century with the public debates about this. Uh, the first really global public debate about this issue is taking place in the years 1930, 1914. And then I'm going into the interwar period, looking how during this period, they tried to regulate the arms trade. And what you see is that uh, actually when there was a specific time when there was a lot of attempts and a lot of effort to regulate the arms trade, then it was during the interwar period. And because afterwards, uh, after Second World War, these attempts don't, uh, are taken up again and uh, you almost don't see any... Uh, effort to reopen the case for international regulation of the arms trade and only by the end of the 60s this uh, issue is uh, taken up again and uh, then discussed during the 70s before it 
ends again uh, under Reagan and uh, the so-called Second Cold War that starts uh, at uh, the turn of the decade. So this is uh, the time uh, span that I'm taking into account. I'm starting uh, right at the beginning of the 20th century and going uh, up to the end of the Cold War. Another ambitious transnational project then? Yes, it's, uh, I think, a little bit too ambitious because if you want to do international law, you have to go into so many archives. Actually, you would have to consult every single archives of all the countries involved, but that's uh, not, not possible. So one has to be also pragmatic. Will there be, I hope, another German component at some point so that we can have an excuse to get you back on the show? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping so, yeah. <laughs> well, if not, we can direct you to one of our colleagues on another channel. Yes. At any rate, this has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking with Daniel Stahl about his new book, Hunt for Nazis, South America's Dictatorship and the Prosecution of Nazi Crimes. Hunt for Nazis is available from Amsterdam University Press as of August 2018 and comes highly recommended. The original German study, Nazi Jagd, was awarded the Volkswagen Stiftung's Opus Primum Prize. No small feat. Anyway, if you've found your interest peaked, pop on over to the link in the blog description. Hunt for Nazis would make a worthy addition to any serious library on Latin America, modern Europe, transnational relations, and international law. With that, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then. Until then.